Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Tuesday's top story. Is it just me or is a three box just super intimidating? It's just the three of us. Four is comfy. Four of us is comfy. Miss Jen. Okay, let's talk about SBF. Apparently, a lot of people in Washington, D.C. have been taking cash from FTX. Of course, they thought it was legal at the time. But right now, in the midst of Chapter 11 bankruptcy filings, it's not a great place to be. According to Coindesk's own running of the numbers, about 196 members of the new Congress, including senators and congressmen themselves, have taken cash from SBF in various amounts of, you know, from $2,000 all the way up. And now everyone's looking at them being like, hey, what are we going to do with this money? According to uh, different lawyers and bankruptcy experts that Coindesk has spoken with, you do have to give this money back, quote, even if you're Mother Teresa. This is a pretty different angle than we've seen on a lot of the other stories about SPF because this has direct ties to people who are just elected to our democracy. And they're, of course, looking into these numbers themselves being like, do I need to give this money back? A lot of them have opted to give the money back or have donated to charity. Thing here is, if you do donate to charity, you're still liable to give that money back to the creditors who are now processing through all the claims on FTX's balance sheet. Zach, I want to throw this one over to you. I love the story from Coindesk getting into the numbers on uh, the Chapter 11 filings here. It's really important to know who took money from SBF and, more importantly, who's going to give it back. One in three, nearly 200 lawmakers were affected by this. This is quite remarkable, right? I think the extent of SBF's contributions to the Biden campaign was widely reported and known. But this, to me, is pretty revealing that a significant chunk of cash was spent on members of Congress. Pretty crazy, given that he had been uh, granted such access to these lawmakers through numerous hearings, both official and semi-official, up on Capitol Hill. I mean, we shouldn't forget that Sam Bankman-Fried was a regular fixture in Capitol Hill toward the end of 2022 there before everything hit the fan in November. He was up there speaking on behalf of the industry and advocating for what some argued was more restrictive policies around DeFi and things that would have made on-chain crypto activity much more difficult in terms of being regulated and compliant. So this is wild that in addition to the spending lavishly on sports sponsorships, 
and other marketing efforts, political contributions was up there quite a bit in terms of how far SBF reached into that conversation. I'm never going to tire of how crazy this story is that the person who was seen as the trusted voice for the crypto industry on Capitol Hill turned out to be an alleged fraudster is really just one of the more shocking things to have ever happened in this industry. And it's just like a great American story. It's like Gatsby-esque or something. I don't know what the word would be, but it's crazy that this data supports just how absurd the reality is that played out at the end of 2022 with these revelations starting in November. Just wild. Wendy, I don't know. So there's a lot to kind of discuss in this particular topic. First off, there are bad actors in every industry. Absolutely. There are psychopaths in every single industry. And the reason why we're seeing this more highlighted in crypto is because of crypto Twitter. Crypto Twitter is so toxic and vile at times, like everybody is out there in full force battling. Just a couple of weeks ago, we saw Genesis and Digital Currency Group, those guys going head to head on crypto Twitter. That is not something that you see in traditional finance. A lot of that stuff is done behind closed doors. So it makes our industry look a lot worse. However, with that being said, this really stems back to our public servants. Why are they allowed to take donations? Why can't they operate on the budgets that are already given to them through our tax dollars? So that makes me take a step back and ask a bigger question. Like who's really at fault here? If SBF got caught giving money to one out of three lawmakers in the United States of America, just imagine other industries, how much money that they're giving to these lawmakers that isn't being disclosed. And again, I don't have the data on that right now, but if we're seeing just one entity like FTX, a multi-billion dollar entity, FTX giving all this money to all these lawmakers, imagine what some of these other large corporations are doing that, have, that has the capital in the food industry, in the retail industry, in the delivery industry, pharma, pharmaceutical industry, banking industry. There's people with way more money than SBF and it's still happening. So realistically, this is a American problem. It's an American government problem. It's a problem with our public servants and it kind of needs to stop. I'm kind of at the point to where we shouldn't, if you're going to be a public servant, you actually need to serve the people instead of doing it for money and accepting all this money on the back end. It's a ridiculous story to me. It's absolutely disgusting. And I just want to see better from our public servants on all end. And again, you guys, this isn't just happening in crypto. This is people sort of exercising or basically articulating their support, right? Articulating their support in form of contribution, whether it's a small time, person or a big business. And this is kind of how it works, I think, in modern US democracy. And oftentimes but it checks shouldn't. get people's ear. I guess you're right. It shouldn't. It shouldn't necessarily be that, oh, I wrote $2,900 to a you know congressional member and now he's going to hear me out potentially on crypto issues that matter to me. Some of these amounts are relatively small. Maybe it should work this way where you and I can do this potentially with the equal, equally the same footing as someone like Sam Bankman-Fried. Potentially that is the way it should work. But I agree that this is across the board how industries get their stories heard on K Street, right? That oftentimes they hire big lobbying firms to further advance these messages. Honestly, maybe the direct contributions are less impactful than some of the lobbying spend that we've seen from big actors in this space over the last few years who have really tried to get that story out there to regulators in a way that they understand. So this to me is something that is absolutely, to Wendy's point, you know, par for the course, standard operating procedure as it relates to how our democracy functions, maybe for better or worse. And it's not necessarily a crypto story, but a DC story. And I hear you on that. Will, I'm going to kick it to you. Sorry for stepping on you. No, I want to push back a little bit on what you guys are saying, because I do think that the sword cuts both ways, right? So in case of SBF, you don't like the fact that he was lobbying on behalf of the industry because in fact, he was going against the industry in many ways. Zach, you brought up the DeFi stuff that he was talking about in August. That definitely hurt the industry. That being said, there's a lot of people in Washington, D.C. or other governments around the world who do not like crypto and don't want crypto to be pushed forward. I was talking to a large public miner 
the other day about this whole issue, their list on the NASDAQ, and his number one concern is actually government. It's not about Bitcoin. It's not about mining. It's not about like the state they're operating in. It's about the federal government coming down, pushing down on their business. So I do think a lot of these bigger CEOs, these people who have large pocketbooks because they run profitable businesses in the space, they want to be influential in DC because they are worried about the space in an actual way. They're worried about regulators coming in and squashing a new industry that's just starting up that has so many benefits. I think we just really got an unlucky hand, right? Like we, we hit the eight ball really early with SBF and we shouldn't have. And that's unfortunate, but it's where we're at. I still think that we need to have industry leaders in Washington, D.C. I don't like the lobbyist part. I agree with both you guys. That is just the unfortunate part of our democracy. But I think it is important, if that's how the game is played, to have good representation on Capitol Hill. Zach, back to you. And those people are going to have to like double down on their efforts because as articulated in this article, there is a massive amount of distrust out there right now that their trusted gateway to the crypto industry turned out to be allegedly a massive fraud. That is uh, giving them much doubt, right? The guy who is quoted in the kicker is saying, it's hard for us not to believe that there aren't other FTXs out there. So you better believe that that lobbying spend that you mentioned, Will, uh, might be getting ramped up to sort of correct that is indeed a misperception. Thursday's top story. That's right. New comments from John J. Ray III, the now CEO, the acting CEO of defunct exchange FTX. According to John Ray III, who spoke with Wall Street, he might reboot old FTX and get it up on its feet again, if that makes sense. Right now, they're going through the creditors, they're looking at all the the liabilities and assets on the balance sheet sink, who needs the money now? But they're thinking this might make sense to boot the exchange back up because it's working product. The exchange itself was actually highly touted by a lot of traders who enjoyed working with the interface. So maybe it's a good way for the creditors to earn some funds. We actually see this happening in a few other Chapter 11 cases uh, throughout the industry where a few other companies are keeping their cash flows um, moving by keeping the core businesses alive. This, of course, can't happen during a Chapter 11 bankruptcy because Chapter 11 is restructuring. doesn't necessarily mean that the company is going away. Zach, I want to throw this story over to you. This one caught a lot of people off of guard this morning. Yeah, it's definitely within the realm of possibility, right? Chapter 11 is about restructuring under the protection of a bankruptcy court. Chapter 7, that's the death knell. That's the liquidation chapter. This is not Chapter 7. This is by no means a death knell for these businesses going forward. And it's interesting that John J. Reed III old daddy Enron here from those congressional hearings who came out so gruff and so capable looking. He's saying, hey, we won't be able to stand this thing up because you know what? Some of the mechanics here are actually pretty decent. You talk to traders in the space and they say FTX, when it was working, was working pretty well. Forget about the back doors. Forget about the huge loan book to Alameda that may have sunk it. Forget about some of the more fraudulent practices that have been unearthed in the last few months. If you go back to the actual basics, the meat and potatoes of how FTX functioned, some traders swore by it. So the fact that this could be trotted out as a way to help make creditors uh, whole is something that is within the realm of possibility, given that this is Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Interestingly, this being crypto, the DGENs who are trading the FTT token, the relatively worthless FTT token, gave it a big old boost on this news today, sending it up something like 33% as this made the rounds on crypto Twitter. So interesting to see some life maybe in the FTX project going forward. Who knows? Uh, this is indeed in the service of filling some big holes in terms of the money that you know, people both on the platform and those who had lent money to it are still seeking. So this could help that process. And if John J. Ray III says so, hey, maybe it's real. I'll toss it to Adam. What do you think? I think first off, we should just say John J. Ray III a lot because that's, that's pretty fun. 
I got to say, that's one of the more fun parts about this story. Uh, as far as the possibility of bringing back FTX as an exchange, I think that there's the technical possibility of doing it. I think that you know all the arguments that you've made are totally valid. I would point out that if you look at the historical sort of context around other exchanges that have held really dominant positions in the industry and then fell from them for one reason or another, I can't really think of a single example where they were able to reclaim the heights that they had achieved before. The one that kind of comes to mind most clearly that might be an example of this is Poloniex, which was basically the dominant exchange during the kind of pre-ICO and early ICO era. And then it was acquired by Circle and it just became less and less and less important until Circle eventually divested itself of it. Uh, it still exists. People still trade on it. Does it matter in the industry? No, it doesn't. And it really used to for a long time. So to my eyes, that's what I see here is everybody loves speculating on this stuff. And clearly when there are tokens involved, then you're going to have lots of people who are betting one way or another. And that's what this game seems like to me more than anything else. But to the extent that they can actually bring it back and use it to generate revenue, that seems like that's a win-win really for everybody. Uh, back over to you, Zach. Yeah, I like the cultural point. Right? I think there was a lot of speculation within you know, crypto Twitter and beyond, right? Are there any second acts in crypto history that have actually panned out, right? And you mentioned not many have ever come back from the grave. And those who have sort of return as a shell of their former self, you think BitMEX, you think Polo, you think some of these other firms that are disgraced. And then, you know, through whatever means, they return to some version of operating as normal. But culturally, I think the question is, can it be accepted as something, given just the huge ding on its reputation that this whole proceeding has unearthed? Can it come back from that? I think historically, the answer tends to be no. There are some coins that go fallow that come back. That's also a rarity in crypto, right? Maybe Ethereum is probably the one that, that bucks that trend. It was kind of dead for a minute there. Came back in a big way. Come, come 2020 following that Black Swan event in March. All this stuff, I think, is part of that cultural conversation. If FTX does come back, can it come back and can it reclaim some of its former glory? I tend to agree with you, Adam, on the fact that that's not likely to happen, even if operationally it ends up generating some money to make former users whole. Adam, I saw your hand, then we'll toss it to Will. Yeah, just a, a real quick kind of point on the, the token side of things. I think that's also really valid and interesting to point out is that there's nobody who turns the lights off for a token that has served its purpose or failed and then died and effectively has no, no chance of becoming meaningful in the speculative sense that many people uh, imagine that it might be. But what you do find is that tokens don't die. They just get cheap enough that you have these scammers who accumulate a lot of them and then wind up uh, you know, using them in pump and dumps and stuff like that. So so that's, that's less true with companies. It's more true with tokens. But it's again, it's something to watch out for, especially as these big names, once disgraced, have a real hard time kind of climbing their way back and we rarely ever see it. Will, you get the last word on this one. Yeah, two things I want to bring up really quickly before we go on to the next segment. The first about FTT tokens. So the creditors and the Chapter 11 process here, they found about $5 billion in liquid assets, apparently. But if you look at the breakdown of those liquid assets, the second largest asset on that balance sheet is actually FTT token. So, you know, that's like just what you said there, Adam. It's kind of can't die. And they're, they're counting that as something that actually has value. And if they liquidated it, people would be buying it. But would they really? Uh, so that is bringing up a question here with uh, FTT pump we're saying right now. The second point to bring up is just SBF's comment to the Wall Street Journal. They texted him about John J. Ray III's comments about booting back up FTX. And he said, this is a shocking and damning comment from someone pretending to care about customers. Great little line from SBF, living with his parents right now, you know, doom scrolling Twitter like the rest of us. Zach, let's go to the next story though. We got an even better one. 
Hot season two, really shaping up. Good stuff. What if JJ Ray the third was red pilled and he's just pumping FTT to make it more liquid and actually return? Wow, this is crazy. Anyway, Friday's top story. It finally happened, guys. Last night, Genesis Capital filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. We've been waiting for this since November. We didn't want it to happen, but we did think it was going to happen for quite a while. Let's dig into this news as it is hot off the press. So late last night, late Thursday night, Genesis Capital filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. We're still finding out what that means, but we do know they have about $3.5 billion in liabilities, over 100,000 creditors ranging from DRW to FTX and many others. This is a huge bombshell for the crypto industry. Of course, this follows after Celsius, Voyager, Terra Luna, 3AC, FTX, and now Genesis. So the other shoe has definitely dropped. Adam, I'm going to throw a story over to you to get some thoughts on it. We have so many headlines to pick our way through this morning. There's a lot of money on the table and a lot of heads are about to roll. Yeah, this is definitely one that's been a long time coming, much anticipated sort of since the collapse of FTX back in November. Uh, It was sort of anticipated that this would happen and now we have indeed seen it come to fruition. So the kind of one of the interesting things that jumped out to me on this, not necessarily the right place to start here, but something that's interesting is that the largest creditor on FTX's books is actually Genesis, which sort of just goes to show the interconnectedness that exists between all of these larger centralized financial institutions that are really operating primarily in the world of cryptocurrency. So that's why you get these kind of these aggressive contagion rounds, right? It's kind of like the traditional financial environment, except there are no guardrails. There's nobody who's going to bail anybody out. And every time we see somebody try to bail somebody out, we see, oh, actually, one, either that's not going to happen because it's real money that needs to go in, or two, you can't solve a criminal problem just by pumping more money into it, uh, which again, in many of these cases, the allocations have shown. So I think that's kind of an interesting place to start. I'll also note that Danny Nelson has a new story that just came out a minute or two ago, which actually puts the total liabilities filed at about $5.1 So that number has gone up over the course of the last couple of hours while we've been watching this story develop. Sam, where are you on this one? You kind of mentioned how a lot of big players are impacted by this. Obviously, um, Genesis was a big creditor to FTX, but in the other direction, there's, of course, Gemini, which was um, running its yield product, Gemini Earn, by essentially lending out a bunch of its users' money through Genesis. And um, it ended up being very public about this. The Winklevi, the you know Facebook, quote, maybe co-founder twins, um, you know, were the ones who were Behind that, anyway, they, they came out hard against Barry Silbert um, at the head of DCG, um, which is the parent company of Coindesk and of Genesis, saying that, um, you know, he really drove his feet in the lead up to this entire bankruptcy filing process. And anyway, um, th- there's a lot more to say about the contagion. We'll get to that, too. But I'm kind of curious maybe to turn back to you, Will, if you have any insight or thought in terms of now we have, like you said, at long last seen this bankruptcy filing happen, but we saw it coming for a while. And Barry has been accused of dragging his feet. You know, what, you know, did he lose or gain by waiting this long? What do you think just happened? Yeah, that's a million dollar question. And one we're going to have to ply through over the next few weeks. What did Barry Silver at DCG know? Of course, DCG owns Coindesk. So a quick disclosure there. What did he know? When did he make decisions on this? And why did he make those decisions? We, we can go even go back to, to May this year, guys. Remember, Terra Luna imploded. And around that same time, Barry Silver tweeted out that there was a daisy chain of different parties within crypto who owed liabilities to each other. And it was important to know who was on the other side of those liabilities and those assets, right? And it seems like DCG was, in fact, on the other side of many of those bad bets. 
because of Genesis, its fully owned subsidiary. And we know that DCG around that time also took on a lot of the liabilities of Genesis after Genesis basically went insolvent from a lot of its bad bets and its lends or its loans to 3AC. So I think you're totally correct on that question there. Hopefully we get some more answers. The one thing I want to point to next, however, is the impact of this. Like, I don't think we can really underestimate uh, or overestimate right now what this is going to be like, because there's so many different parties involved in Genesis. Genesis was the bellwether. They were the largest uh, loan operator within crypto. I think last year it was over $124 billion in load originations. Someone can fact check me on that, of course, but it was, it was quite a large amount of loan originations that went out to so many different places in the crypto universe. And a lot of people were actually pouring money into them as well. So the first one we should talk about is Gemini with their earn program, which we've covered many times on the hash. Withdrawals on that program were, were stopped in November. Uh, they've been sued, both Genesis and Gemini, by the SEC. And people are questioning what's going to happen there, especially with this Chapter 11 filing from Genesis. And then even going more deeper, we know that you know you can invest in Genesis through subsidiaries, right? Or through like little shell organizations of things of that nature. So one story we have on Coindesk right now is that the Fairfax County, Virginia pension fund is actually exposed to Genesis for about $35 million. So if you think about it, like there could be lots of normal mom and pop investment firms invested in Genesis. And they invest in someone else and that investment firm invested in Genesis. And now those funds are all at risk. So for the crypto world writ large, this has huge importance. I, I don't think we see an end to this for quite a while, probably years. Adam, back over to you. Yeah, so I have a couple of thoughts here. Uh, first off, to the question of what does DCG or Barry get from having delayed to this point, I don't think it's what they get. I think it's what they got. And what they got was an opportunity to try to solve this in a way that didn't involve going through a formal bankruptcy process. There are a lot of different ways that that could have happened. They could have taken on new investment. We know that they were out seeking investment. We also know that they uh, were trying to negotiate basically a prepackaged bankruptcy where rather than having the process play out in a court and need to go through a very lengthy process that we've now seen several other entities, including Celsius and Voyager, start the process of, but certainly not exit yet, uh, even after you know, six months, more than six months in those cases, you know, they would have basically just taken, say, hey, we've already made the deals with our creditors. Here's what's going to happen. Can you ratify this? And then that would have been a much shorter process, a process that probably would have left them much better off. Because once you kind of open this can of worms, we don't really know where this thing's going to go. And I think that, that that uncertainty creates a lot of problems, really, for a lot of participants in the industry. But it's also interesting to note that the price of Bitcoin, price of cryptocurrency is largely up today, really kind of uh, green markets across the board. And that kind of says that this is something that people have been thinking about, anticipating for quite a while. And so it's not like it actually comes as a negative surprise. The, the fact that it's no longer a thing we have to anticipate, that we have to worry about, markets, at least for the moment, seem to have taken this as a more positive sign than a negative sign, if just because it was so expected. Uh, Will, back over to you. Yeah, I want to bring up the story that you mentioned a few minutes ago, now that we have the lower thirds for it. The Genesis is actually claiming a $5.1 billion in liabilities, according to their new interim CEO. Of course, they had that leadership shuffle back in the summer when uh, the issues at Genesis first came to light. And then, of course, they had the second misstep with the collapse of FTX. They lost about $100 million plus dollars on the FTX platform. And then they also had a lot of loan originations out to Alameda that seemed to have gone into thin air. But this is a pretty interesting filing. This is larger than we first thought. And if you go back to other filings we know from earlier this year, you know, when you have that form that you're filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, you say the amount of creditors in like a wide range, wide swath, because you just have a few boxes to check off. And then you also have 
the liabilities. And it's typically between one and $10 billion is what we've seen. And now we have like a little bit more uh, granularity on what these uh, liabilities are. And this is, this is a lot of money, $5.1 billion, just to put that in perspective. I mean, this was the total market cap for Bitcoin not too long ago. And right now, Bitcoin's market cap, I believe, is around $300 billion. It might have changed with the price movements recently, but this is a lot of money that is just gone. Like, where, where are people going to find this? I'm going to throw it back over to Sam. Well, we talked before about this Fairfax County, um, Virginia pension fund that was exposed to the Genesis bankruptcy. We also know there was an article that Coindesk put up today um, from Jamie Carley about how Cumberland, which is a, you know, a big trading desk um, in the crypto world, they are apparently, according to the Genesis filing, um, out $18 million in terms of their claim um, against the firm. But now they're saying, they being Cumberland, that the bankruptcy filing was misleading um, with incorrect information. They tweeted something out about this, and I'm sure we'll hear a bunch more. They want to make it look like their exposure was smaller than it was reported in the filing. But I do think that this kind of gives us a launching off point to talk about something that I think we do have as a benefit of the way in which this bankruptcy process, all bankruptcies are different, um, has gone so far, which is that we actually not only, as we've talked about, have seen the size of the, the, you know, the assets or the creditor group that is out, like in terms of, you know, $3.5 billion or something, but we also see the top 50 creditors, sorry, are owed $3.5 billion. We don't only see that, that number of 50, but we see their names. And that's not actually something that we see in every single filing. It has to do with the type of bankruptcy it is. It has to do with the court, the jurisdiction, something that we haven't seen in FTX. And there's a lot of news organizations. I think that Coindesk entered in, entered as part of like some challenge to get FTX to disclose its top creditors. But anyway, this is all to say that I think one of the advantages that we have here with Genesis is we do get to see that, for example, a pension fund was exposed. This is something that we have not seen yet when it comes to FTX. And so the contagion effect is a lot easier to measure, I guess, in this case. So for me, one side note to this is that this is good evidence for why some of those disclosures are helpful. Yeah, so there's, I think, a bunch of things to say here. Uh, The first is that, so, uh, Will, you know, you said that, like, there's a $5.1 billion hole as far as liabilities. We don't know how many assets they have. So I feel like it's not really safe to say at this point that, there's a, that that's how big the hole is. That's how big the number is that they owe to their folks. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the problem is. We might find the problem is a $2 billion problem. Still a gigantic problem. Again, the scale of the thing is hard to kind of wrap your head around. But it is, again, pretty massive. And we continue to see this from these really large centralized companies. The other thing that I think is important to note is that the reason why we keep seeing these issues is partly because of the interconnectedness, uh, but also partly because of this global hunt for yield that basically central banks have kind of uh, shuttled, you know, everyone <laughs> uh, down over the course of the last dozen years or so, where basically by, by artificially depressing interest rates, you kind of take away the ability to have safe bets where it's like, hey, I'm keeping my money in the bank. I'm earning 5% interest on it per year. And like that was a reality back, you know, maybe 20 years ago. It's not a reality today, uh, you know, in anything other than very risky spaces. And I think that that also then speaks to the pension fund question, which is, you know, you look at a pension fund like uh, the Fairfax County one, and I believe it's a multi-billion dollar fund. I think that they have more than $5 billion of assets under management. So $35 million is not a big bet for them. And even if they lose all of it, it's not going to hurt them much. But it speaks to the broader problem that exists when you tamper with monetary policy in ways that central banks and governments have been doing for the last dozen or so years. 
where you basically remove the opportunity to have safe return that can be low because that's what pension funds are designed to do. They're designed to take money uh, from people who are saving for their retirement and then to invest that money in ways that are safe and prudent and allow them to, to uh, using a combination of new money coming in from people who are continuing to work and you know interest off of what they, uh, returns off of what they invest into, that's how they make their money. So if you say, all right, well, the only ways that you can safely do things now is to earn a quarter point yield or half a point of yield on an annual basis, that's insufficient to meet the need. And so you find these companies that should be the most boring companies in the world, the insurance companies, the pension companies, instead just being shoved down this chute into the same risk bucket as everybody else is in. And that, again, is, is not a natural thing. That is purely because there is no alternative, thanks to the monetary policy decisions our leaders have and continue to make. Well, Yeah, de- definitely agree with you there. I do think it's notable and be increasing topic of conversation that a lot of these firms did invest in Bitcoin or did invest in firms that were adjacent to Bitcoin and they lost the bag, right? So in 2020, 2021, the story was institutional adoption. And with all these chapter 11 filings occurring, I don't think you see as many institutions jumping into crypto as easily as they would have in the past. Might just only be $35 million, but that's $35 million they don't have anymore, uh, or at least right now. You know, they could get it back through the chapter 11 process. We don't quite know yet. You've been listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.